Hello and welcome to the podcast for the June 2008 issue of The Lancet Oncology. I'm Richard Lane and I'm joined by two members of The Lancet Oncology's editorial team. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Emma Cannell and Sally Vandermeer. Welcome both of you. Emma, let's start with you because one of the most interesting items I think in the June issue is this pilot study which is looking at a treatment for hot flushes associated with treatment for breast cancer. How common and serious are hot flushes for women having treatment for breast cancer? Well, Richard, hot flushes are a relatively common occurrence in survivors of breast cancer. For example, one recent study estimated about 65% of survivors experience hot flushes, and 59% of those rated the symptom as severe, with 44% rating the symptom as extremely bothersome. Unrelieved hot flushes have serious effects in that they can disrupt sleep, cause fatigue, irritability. When the flushes are very severe, the symptoms can also include nausea, dizziness, anxiety and headache. And this, of course, leads to a very poor quality of life. The flushes actually result from treatment with hormone treatments such as oestrogen synthesis inhibitors, oestrogen antagonists and aromatase inhibitors. And these hormone treatments are increasingly being used in the treatment of breast cancer. Other treatments that can cause artificial menopause, such as certain chemotherapies, can also result in an increased number of hot flushes. And there is also now some evidence that those that undergo an artificial menopause actually experience more flushes than those that are in natural menopause. In answer to your question as to how serious a complication it really is, it can actually have an effect on compliance to treatment too. Estrogen modulators such as tamoxifen are taken over long periods of time. And of course, if patients aren't compliant to treatment, that can affect the efficacy. In relation to this study we're about to discuss, this is a a small pilot study. And this is looking at the use of stellate ganglion block. This is an anaesthetic block that's been used for many years. What's the thinking behind the mechanism as to how this block might alleviate the flushes? In this issue of the Lancet Oncology, there's a prospective pilot study by Lipoff and colleagues who are researchers from Illinois in the States, and they use a surgical block, which is so-called stellate ganglion block, as treatment for severe hot flushes in survivors of breast cancer. The theory is that the symptoms of hot flushes, such as sweating, flushing and peripheral vasodilation, are mechanisms that the body uses to dissipate heat. The body's core temperature is generally regulated between two extremes an upper threshold for sweating and vasodilation and a lower threshold for shivering and vasoconstriction. Between these two thresholds is a thermoneutral zone. This is where the thermoregulatory adjustments do not occur and it's been proposed by researchers that hot flushes actually result from a narrowing of this zone. Temperature control generally is very complex and is thought to involve several regions of the brain. The stellate ganglion interacts with several of these key structures. So by blocking the stellate ganglion, The theory is that its input into the sympathetic nervous system that governs temperature control can also be blocked. Just briefly outline the methodology and results here. It is a small pilot study, we we should stress. Well, the actual block was used at the anterior lateral aspect of the C6 vertebra in the neck on the right side. It's done by experts and guided under fluoroscopy. It's a 10-minute procedure in general, and a local anaesthetic is injected next to the stellate ganglion to produce the block. A successful block was indicated by the presence of temporary Horner's syndrome. This includes symptoms of drooping upper eyelids, sunken eyes, the absence of facial sweat, excessive contraction of pupil of the eye and bloodshot conjunctivita. This syndrome, however, as I said, was temporary and it resolved within eight hours with the absorption of the anaesthetic and there were no other adverse events noted, although some patients did report some minimal pain. Thirteen patients were treated. They were all survivors of breast cancer aged 38 to 71 years 
and were experiencing very severe hot flushes and night awakenings. These patients were asked to record in a daily diary the number and severity of their flushes and also night awakenings, both at baseline and then the daily measurements were pulled into a weekly measurement over a 12-week follow-up period. Some patients had more than one block, in that 8 of the 13 had two blocks. The results are very, very interesting in that the total number of hot flushes decreased from a mean of 79.4 per week to 49.9 per week during the first two weeks. And then during the the remainder of the follow-up period, up to week 12, these continued to decrease and stabilise at a mean of 8.1 per week. The number of mild hot flushes initially went up from a mean of 7.2 per week to 17.5 per week, but then they also decreased to 2 per week. Decreases were also seen for moderate and severe hot flushes, and most notably for the very severe hot flushes. And these decreased from 22 per week at baseline to 1.8 during the first two weeks after the procedure. Night awakenings also decreased by about two-thirds and stabilised at only 1.4 per week. And finally, Emma, before we move on to talk to Sally about some other content in this month's issue of the Lancet Oncology, what next for research in this area? Obviously, clearly, this is a small pilot study, and the authors do point out that methodologically there would be some issues with running a randomised trial with this type of approach. So where next? In this study, as I mentioned previously, it was patient-reported symptoms and there's always the possibility of a placebo effect. So blinding would have been a real advantage in this study. Unfortunately, this wasn't possible as the authors had explained to the patients about the presence of Horner's syndrome indicating a successful block. However, the authors do report anecdotal evidence from their previous pilot experience in patients without breast cancer where one patient had a delayed Horner's syndrome after her second block. She did not see a reduction in her symptoms, but had seen a reduction in her symptoms after a successful first block and a later successful third block. As she had not been told that the delays Horner's syndrome meant that the block was unsuccessful, this actually provides a really nice internal control for the patient reporting system or at least in this one patient. The authors now are actually looking at the use of pulsed radio frequency techniques on the stellate ganglion, and a blinded design should be possible for this technique. They have seen some early promising data. As pointed out by the link commentators to this paper, Dr Charles Leprinzi and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester in the States, the lack of a marker, though, of a successful block in the radio frequency studies will actually make it more difficult to determine whether a block has been successful. You asked what next? Well, there's several interesting questions raised by this study, and some of these are discussed by the authors of this link comment. Questions such as, how many blocks will be needed in the average patient? The authors have anecdotal evidence that a single block can be effective in some patients for more than two years. How amenable will the patients be to having these repeated surgical procedures? or even to enrolment to an invasive procedure. In this study, patients had severe symptoms, so perhaps they were very much more amenable to an invasive procedure. Dr Leprinzi suggests that the number of patients who refuse enrolment should be monitored in future studies. Also, the long-term safety of this procedure needs to be assessed more thoroughly. Stellet ganglion block has been in use for over 60 years to relieve pain of a vascular insufficiency, and the technique has improved vastly over the years and guidance is now under fluoroscopy. The authors in this particular study used the block at the C6 vertebra because when the C7 vertebra is blocked, there is a risk of pneumothorax, which is a collapsed lung. There are, however, very few studies that actually assess these long-term adverse events, and this is an area that needs much more research. 
The study, as you mentioned, Richard, is a pilot study, and a longer follow-up is needed and a larger study in this area. And the costs of this procedure also need to be assessed. Dr. Leprinzi suggests that they cost around US dollars to US dollars per procedure. And then there are issues about whether these costs are reimbursable or not. Thanks very much, Emma. I'm also joined by Sally van der Meer from the Lancet Oncology. Welcome, Sally. And we're going to discuss a couple of items. Let's kick off with this personal view in the June issue of the Lancet Oncology. And that's looking at carcinoma of unknown primary. I have to confess this was a new one on me. Sally, first of all, can you, can you define CUP and how common is it? CUP is, as you say, carcinoma of unknown primary. This is where the clinicians can detect the presence of metastatic cancer, but they can't find the primary tumour in the patient. This diagnosis is found in 3-5% to of all patients who suffer cancer. That makes it one of the top 10 most diagnosed cancers in the United States. And what are the current treatment options? Well, this is a heterogeneous disease. Currently it is treated as a single entity which means that patients are just given a platinum-based chemotherapy combination. Also, the personal view talks out about the importance of this single subtype that's quite common. Can you just elaborate on that? Well, the authors have based this on their experience at their institute, and they've used immunohistochemistry and molecular profiling to work out that there's a subset of CUP, which is called the colon cancer profile. And this is where the metastases have similar surface markers to those found in colon cancer. And so the authors have treated patients with normal colon cancer chemotherapy and patients have responded very well to this. And what do the authors say about the way ahead for the diagnosis and treatment of CUP and and its subtypes? Well, firstly, they want to study more about the immune histochemistry and the molecular profiling because in certain cases they find that these two different diagnostic techniques don't actually agree. So they want to be able to reconcile the differences between these two techniques to make it more easy to make a diagnosis. They then want to go into prospective studies to validate their hypothesis that using colon cancer profile is the best way to treat this subset of patients. They then want to identify additional subsets so that all people with carcinoma of unknown primary can be treated in the best way for their particular cancer. Thank you, Sally. And do stay with us because I'd also like just to ask you about the Leading Edge editorial this month. And this is looking at the human papillomavirus vaccine, the HPV vaccine, which is clearly a very topical issue as it's on the market and it's been targeted at as a preventive vaccine aimed at adolescents. And obviously there's been quite a lot written about that in the media here in the UK and elsewhere. But specifically, this is looking at the issue of public confidence in the vaccine because of some recent worrying safety concerns about the vaccine. Can you just walk us through the recent story? Between November 2007 and January 2008, the FDA spent 30 days at the Merck plant in Montgomery County. This plant makes several vaccines and one of these is Merck's new HBV vaccine. The FDA found 49 separate failures in processes at this plant and these include sterility, equipment maintenance and sanitation, data recording, packaging and quality control. Okay Sally, so in addition to these safety concerns we also need to add in, if you like, the general story if you like with the HPV vaccine. What do we know about the willingness of the take-up of the vaccine and obviously we're talking about parents here as well as actually adolescents themselves aren't we? 
In a recent study published in the BMJ, the authors designed a programme to vaccinate 2,817 schoolgirls. And before the vaccination could actually take place, the parents of the children had to complete a consent form. 8% of the parents actually refused consent specifically and 20% of the parents did not return the consent form. And this meant that a third of the girls were not vaccinated. OK, so when we weigh up the recent safety issues from Merck and the research coming out of the BMJ, where do we stand with Gardasol now? Is this a temporary blip in terms of the safety issues at Pharma? Or do you think there could be longer-lasting problems with this particular vaccine? And what about other vaccines in this area as well? Because Gardasol isn't the only one around, is it? I think that if the company acts quickly and decisively and uh, cleans up the production at the plant and the reputation at that particular plant, then this will be a temporary lot on the reputation of the HPV vaccine. There is also another vaccine called Severex made by GlaxoSmithKline. However, my worry is that if there was to be a major scandal then the reputations of HPV vaccines as a whole would be damaged rather than simply one make or the other. So I think it is very important that the company rectifies the problem before public confidence in the HPV vaccine is eroded. Well, it's a very interesting story and I'm sure we are going to hear a lot more about it. Sally, thank you very much. Emma, thank you very much as well. These are some of the highlights from the June issue of the Lancet Oncology. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next month.